we're going to be continuing in our, in our study through the book of Job, Sovereign Suffering, this morning. And last Sunday, we looked at Satan's second assault, where the devil removed Job's physical health. Uh, he struck Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, the crown of his head. Uh, but Job did not respond as Satan had anticipated. Instead of cursing God like Satan said he would, Job continued to worship God. And at the very end of the verse that we looked at in chapter ten or chapter two, or chapter two, verse ten, it says he did not sin with his lips. So he did not respond the way Satan said he would. Um, he responded precisely how God said he would. And so um, Job, in a sense, passed that test as well. In the next section we are introduced to Job's friends, Job's friends. They came to visit Job upon hearing about his terrible calamity. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 2. We'll be focusing in on verses 11 through 13. Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And I have entitled this message, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Those are the names of Job's friends. Let's pray one more time before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves now and ask that you teach us from your word. And maybe it would be through your word that you humble us. Uh, and teach us this morning about um, everything that you want us to learn through this text, about friendship and these sorts of things that are here. And um, we just humble ourselves now and, and ask that you instruct us. And we pray that you're glorified during this time. And we need your help, Father. Without your Spirit, without sending the Holy Spirit to come in power, uh, this message will fall on deaf ears. It, it won't be applicable. It won't make sense. Or we just simply won't have any desire to apply the principles and truths that we find in this Word. And so we pray for your help now. Be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we need to pick up where we left off last week, and that would be at verse 11a, verse 11a. Here's what the text says in the very next line. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, uh, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And we stop right there. Let's just analyze some of these phrases and words here, break it down so we can get a more complete understanding of the text here. And the first phrase here in this line that really sticks out to me is, is, the, is the phrase, heard of all this evil. Now, I'm not exactly sure why the ESV translators pick the word evil to describe what happened to Job. Uh, they did this back in verse 10. Uh, as well. It could be uh, that because the evil one, right, the evil one, 1 John 5, 19, that would be Satan. It could be because Satan, the evil one, was the source and cause of all the evil that befell Job. Uh, you remember back in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it talks about say, uh, God uh, allowing Satan to commit these evil things against him in chapter 2, verse 7 as well. So the source or origin of all these terrible things that happened 
uh, to Job, the source is the evil one, is Satan. So I wonder if, if that's why the ESV translators are just calling this evil. It could be. Uh, the Hebrew word uh, we, we learned, I think, last week is ra, R-A-H, and it can be translated into English as many other words, uh, and probably my favorite pick would be adversity, and that's the one I applied last week. I think it works better in, in last week's passage. I think it works better in this week's passage. I prefer it, and that's how the NASB renders the verse. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this, not evil, but adversity, that had come upon them, I think that's just a better rendering. Uh, and the reason why I like that rendering is because when you use the word evil and you have God involved in this thing, it makes God sound like He's evil. God is not evil. He's not the author of evil. He does not commit evil. He does not sin. He does not do these things. And yet He has ordained for them to be and for evil to exist and for those uh, who are evil to perpetrate evil. So I just think adversity is a strong word here. All these things that happened to Job are adversities. And that's really a main point that we focused on last week. He went through adversity. And then I, you might remember me saying, I call adversity a blessing because God works through adversity to sanctify. God works through adversity to thin the hurt and to expose the, the false Christians uh, and these sorts of things. He uses adversity. So adversity... Is, is our friend. It's not a friend that we really welcome or like. It's, it's that neighbor you can't stand, right? But when he shows up, you smile at him. And that's what adversity is. It's a difficult thing, but it is, it is so good for us. And, and I say it all the time, and Tom likes this one because he builds his body and all that, but no pain, no gain. You got to have adversity. You got to have adversity. Better rendering there. That's the first phrase we want to deal with. The next one would be, they came each from his own place. And what that tells us is that Job's friends did not live nearby. Uh, they didn't live in the same cul-de-sac. They didn't live in the same neighborhood. They didn't live in the same community or in the same city. They did not live in us. They were from their own places, which were different places than that of Job. Uh, they were from we would say, other parts of that region. Now, who were they and where were they from? Well, they're identified here, and there's some description given about them. There's some clues here. You have Eliphaz the Temanite. Um, Eliphaz was a son of Esau and Adah. Genesis 36, 4, that's one theory, and I think it sticks because this is about the time of, that that would have made sense uh, he lived in Temen. Temen was a, a prominent city in the area of Edom, which is that whole region. It's southeast of the Dead Sea. Uh, Temen is mentioned in Obadiah chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, that text says, And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Temen, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Interesting rebuke there against the city of Temen. Um, Eliphaz, talking about Eliphaz, he had five sons, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, Kanaz, and Temen, whom he named after the city he lived in. He loved his city so much he named a kid after it. Has any of you ever thought of naming your kid Modesto? No, you would never do that. 
Maybe you don't love your town enough. Love Modesto, right? Um, you can read about Eliphaz's kids in Genesis 36, verse 11. Now, Eliphaz traveled a great, great distance to visit Job because Teman was about 100 miles away from Uz, Job's hometown. 100 miles. Now, in our minds, that's not a big deal. That's a drive to Sacramento or whatever. Well, this was camelback, donkeyback, walking on trails, dirt roads, okay? So imagine walking to Sacramento. Who would attempt to do that? And this was a desert region, right? So it was very dry and hot. And so this is 100 miles is far on foot or even on horseback or donkeyback or camelback. So this guy traveled quite a distance to go see Job. And uh, one thing that Teman was known for, and really all of Edom was known for this, but especially uh, Teman, it was known for its wisdom. It was a center for wisdom, Jeremiah 49, verse 7. So that's where Eliphaz was from. Um, and he had five kids and one he named after his hometown. Eliphaz gave three speeches in the book of Job. And his style of speaking, he's more like a theologian. Uh, he's more like a biblical scholar. And he relies heavily upon observation and experience. So he would have been kind of pastoral in his approach to speaking in these things. And I, I would say that he, of the three friends, he is the most considerate. But he still has this terrible tendency to speak very stinging words. Stinging words. Um, Dr. Lawson, Steve Lawson, whom many of us in here uh, know and love, and we've gone through his Bible studies and things together, but he called Eliphaz, Eliphaz the exterminator. <laughs> that gives you kind of an idea of how this guy was. He, he could speak words that would just make you feel like you'd been exterminated, right? He was like, Clark, we need you, right? The bug killer. Uh, the next guy on the list here in the text is Bildad. He's a Shuite. Doesn't mean he wore shoes. Uh, he may have been from a city called Shua, if there was a city called Shua then. And or he could have been possibly from the line of a person named Shua, who was actually born to Abraham and Keturah. Uh, Genesis 25, verse 2. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32. Uh, there's not a whole lot known about him. He as well gave three speeches in the book of Job. He tends to speak as a traditionalist and a historian. He likes to cite traditions. He likes to cite in his writings or in his speaking. He likes to cite tradition. He likes to cite history. He would be the guy that would say, look, here's the situation with you. You need to remember what God did to people back then in this scenario. So he would use history in, a, in an approach of, of correction or something like that. And his counsel to Job is like that of Eliphaz, but it's a lot more intense. There's a lot more intensity there with, with Bildad. I don't know if it's because he was a Shuite. Maybe those people were really intense. Uh, but in any case, he was an intense speaker. 
If he was correcting you, he would do it in a much more intense manner, and we will see that in his um, corrections. Uh, Dr. Lawson calls him Bill Dad the Blaster. So he was the friend that you have in your life who would just blast you at times, right? Just blast you with speech, blast you with whatever. So I think that's a pretty good title for him, Bill Dad the Blaster. And then we have uh, Zophar the Naamathite, is actually how it's pronounced, Naamathite. Uh, he may have been from a city named Naamath and or possibly the son of a woman named Naamah who was the daughter of Lamech and Zillah. Uh, Lamech was a great-great-grandson of Cain. You know, think Cain and Abel, right? Genesis 4, 17 to 22 is where it might tie him to Cain. Uh, we remember Cain is the one who killed Abel. He became the first murderer, Genesis 4, 8. Here's the deal, though. If the events recorded in the book of Job took place before the flood, and they could have, I don't think they did, but they could have, then this theory of, of Zophar being the great-great-grandson of Cain, it could be true. If these events took place after the flood, and I think probably right around the time of the Tower of Babel, or maybe after that, or maybe at the onset of the patriarchal age, then there would be absolutely no correction between this Zophar, the Naamathite, and Nama in Genesis 4.22. We remember that going into the flood, there was one family, Noah, and that's it. And after that, all the races and all the people and all of, not the races, but all the ethnicities and everything were, were birthed out of that original family. And so I just think that that reality post-flood makes it impossible to tie this guy to someone who lived before the flood. All the generations and people were wiped out. So I don't know if he was tied to that gal. I, I think he probably was from a city named Naamath. But if you search history, you can't really find a city named Naamath. You can't find a city named Shua either. So uh, Zophar didn't give three speeches in the book of Job. He gave two. And, and he's a guy who speaks like a blunt moralist. Okay, there's, there's nothing wrong with morality. If, if you know Jesus... You know, you're going to become over time a more and more moral person, right? As you seek to serve the Lord, you're going to see sin a certain way and you're going to want to be moral. But this guy was, was moral on steroids and he was the guy that would point out the immorality in everyone else's lives. He was one of those types. So uh, he was big time, a big time moralist and focused on morals. Uh, he would be the voice of orthodoxy, completely unbending and pointed. I mean, this, this is what we believe, and, and when you have a different opinion, he's going to start judging you and being critical of what you have to say. There's just no leeway with this guy. No leeway with this guy. Just, just blunt. Um, and sadly, he sees God as virtually merciless. Okay, his view of God is God is, is holy and, and these things, and, and this is completely true, but in his economy of God, God is merciless. God likes to crush people like ants. He likes to destroy sinners. So sadly, his view of God is, is very one-sided. He's the guy, and if you've ever had a friend like this in your life, and I have had some, 
He's the guy that focuses mostly on God's wrath and judgment. He's not the guy that focuses on grace. He's not the guy that focuses on mercy. He focuses always on God's wrath and judgment. You know any Christians like that? That's all they ever talk about? Yeah, they're out there. And, and that's the Zophar mentality. Uh, when Zophar speaks, he is ungracious and rude. Ungracious and rude. Uh, his name literally means rough. It means rough. He's a rough one. And Dr. Lawson calls him Zophar the Zealot. Zophar the Zealot. He was a very zealous person for morality and for this judgment and wrath of God. And, and we will learn all of this about him as we, as we study his responses to Job. He's kind of like the friend that you need in your life, but you really don't want him. Sometimes we need people in our lives that are going to speak basic, plain truth to us. But we don't need friends in our lives that are going to pound us with a merciless, angry God who's always wanting to destroy us. That just does not represent our God, even though He does do those things. But He's, never, he's always been merciful. In any case, in the rest of the section, the author here, we think might, maybe it was Job that wrote this book, but the author describes several things Job's friends did. And these details illustrate the strong connection and deep friendship that these guys had with their pal, Job. Now we can move to verse 11b. This is where we really get into, into the text. The other part was kind of an introduction, just kind of telling us a little bit about these guys. Now we can see how they actually responded to the situation, what they did. 11b says they, speaking of these three friends, they made an appointment together to come to show Job's sympathy and comfort him. So when the news of Job's horrific situation reached each of his friends, they immediately contacted one another, and meaning that they wrote letters or did whatever they had to do to get a hold of one another because they couldn't just call each other or send a text. They didn't have that technology, but they formed a plan to contact each other. I think it's interesting because when each one got the news, each one was thinking, I need to call or contact the other guys, right? Each one is thinking the exact same thing. Oh, our friend Job, we need to do something about this. And that somehow they, they make an appointment to come together or they develop a plan to meet up, to rendezvous so they can go and minister to their dear brother, Job. Why? Because they wanted to come to show him sympathy. They wanted to come and comfort him in his time of great loss and now physical sickness. Remember, he's got boils from head to toe. He's a mess. He is a mess. And these guys heard the news, contacted each other somehow, and then made a plan to come together. And I, I think that they planned to come together as a team because they understood something that's very important. They understood that Job's situation was so dynamic and so devastating that it required the assistance of more than just one individual. In other words, these guys said to themselves, there's no way I could go and minister to Job by myself because his situation is so dire and so difficult, so devastating, we're going to have to come together and go as a team. There isn't a single 
friend here is what they're, uh, they're, they're talking about in their minds and maybe with one another. There's just no way that any of us could bear that burden with him and be an effective minister to him on, on our own. This is going to require a team effort to encourage and help this guy. There isn't a single guy here that could do this on their own. And I like that. I like the idea of them coming together and teaming together. There's just no way. And, and sometimes in, there's situations in our lives where people we know and love, um, evil or adversity befalls them, and we immediately realize upon hearing the news, I, I'm going to get a sister in the Lord, a brother in the Lord to go with me because that's going to be a real difficult situation. That person just lost these two loved ones or that person is, is going through this. They're, they're, going to need, they're going to need the counsel of, of many godly men or godly women I, I, I know there's no way that I could just pull this off or I could be a real help by myself. How many of you have been in a situation like that where, where you thought, man, i got to take somebody with me on this because that's what Fred is dealing with. I can't, I can't do it. I, I, need, I, need, I need some support. And that's the thinking of these friends. Now, it must have taken weeks, if not months, for the news of Job's afflictions to reach them for them to communicate with one another, to rendezvous, and then to travel to visit Job? Remember, these guys weren't from us. There's a process involved here. There, it took some time for them to hear the news, for them to communicate, for them to plan, for them to rendezvous, right? In all this time, Job is alone or maybe his wife is there, who at this point wasn't much of a help. But I believe he was alone on the ash heap with his little shard of pottery for company, right? He took the shard of pottery to scrape his wounds because they itched so bad. Or maybe he was trying to fight off infection by not letting them get too bad. He was just alone there with his pottery shard. Job recalled his time alone in chapter 7, verse 3. He said it was months of emptiness and nights of misery. Let me tell you what you don't ever want for yourself or for a loved one, a friend. You never want them to be entirely alone in a situation like this. I would admit that the first thing that we want when we're going through something like this is to be alone. How many of you have ever said that? Just leave me alone. But what we actually need is the support of godly people. We do. And we know Job was alone. All the, the fair-weathered friends that he had gained because of his wealth and all that, as soon as he lost all that, what do you think happened with them? They unfriended him on Facebook. They were gone, right? Fair-weathered friends don't stick around through trials. As soon as you don't have something they can get from, from you, they're gone. Any relationships that he had there and us probably dissolved. He was on the ash heap in the town dump. The only reason why people went out there was to dump stuff and burn it up. You, you know this man was such a prominent man in his city that he would, he would stand in a particular place. It's mentioned here in the book of Job. He would stand in the place of prominent men and women in his city, and that's at the city gates. 
Whenever you entered a city, you would see the most prominent people of that city at the city gates, and they are the ones that would welcome you. They would be standing under the water wealth contentment health sign. Today they stand there and say, turn around. Go back to where you came from. I came from Keys. Come on in. You know, I'm kidding if you're from Keys. But they would literally stand at the city gates, and that was where this prominent man would be found. And now where is he? On the ash heap, covered in boils, suffering loss that we think our losses are bad, and some of us have gone through some pretty bad losses. When, when, when you're feeling down in the dumps, go read Job and get some perspective. Amen? Go read the Gospels and read about what happened to Jesus. Get some perspective. Amen? Months of emptiness, nights of misery. I believe there in chapter 7, verse 3, he's referring to this time alone before his friends could get there. He didn't even know his friends were coming. And any other friends that he had were no longer friends. All alone. Now, we need to be careful not to question the sincerity of Job's friends because of some of the things that they say in the following chapters, right? We have this tendency to think highly of a person or a set of people or three people or whatever like we do here in the, in the text, and then when we start seeing them say stupid things later, we totally throw them out, baby out with the bathwater. We just say they're just, you know, they're just no good. And we need, there's a temptation here to do that when we start reading some of the things that they said in the, in the way that they treated Job. We need to be careful not to question the sincerity of these men or maybe even the godly character of these men in some sense because of some of the things they said later. Surprisingly, Martin Lloyd-Jones called them three good men and true. Now, if Martin Lloyd-Jones had a pretty high opinion of them. Well, I have an extremely high opinion of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's one of my favorite all-time preachers. I think we ought to maybe listen to this guy a little bit when he says something about them like this. Uh, Christopher Ash, who has a commentary on Job that I've been using, he said this. He said, these men were bound to Job as Jonathan was bound to David. And they were not fair-weather friends. Facebook friends who were glad to be able to name drop Job's acquaintance when he was rich and famous or take vacations in his lux luxurious holiday villas. They were loyal friends who took the considerable trouble to travel and come to sympathize and comfort him when he was bankrupt and bereft. See, I think that's the right way to view these friends despite the fact that they said some pretty tough things in the coming chapters. These were real friends, and, and, and sometimes real friends say things to you that you need to hear whether you like it or not. And sometimes friends say things to you that, that should have been said to someone else in different shoes because they didn't really apply to you, but they thought it did. Uh, someone, I think maybe it was Lawson, described this Job in the form of a letter and said that it, it's a good letter. It was just written to the wrong person. 
Because we learned in chapter 1 that Job was what? Blameless and upright. We heard twice that he did not sin. We need to remember that this evil and this adversity that befell Job did not fall upon him because he was actively living in sin. It fell upon him because he was not actively living in sin. Yeah, that's right. Stuff can come upon you. God can ordain things to come upon you while you're in Christ and you're faithful and you haven't committed any sins. You're not looking at stuff on the computer. You ought not be. You're living a righteous life to the best of your ability and the power of the Holy Spirit and, and the bottom can fall out. Because of your unrighteousness? No, because of your righteousness. We need to remember that Satan targets the righteous. Job was, he was, he was not, he was a sinner. He was a sinner saved by grace. But he was blameless and upright. He was not living in a pattern of sin at the time that this happened. And, and his friends kept assuming that the reason why he was going through so much trouble was because of personal sin. And that's why they ended up saying things to him that they shouldn't have said. There were other people that they could have said those things to who were openly living in sin. And, 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 and in my opinion, deserved all the adversity in the world to fall upon them. Even then, God spares us to some degree. But don't question these guys because they said some hard things. It's a great letter. It was just addressed to the wrong person because Job needed their support. He didn't need to be corrected by them. Now, the Hebrew word for comfort is nakam, nakam. And the meaning goes way beyond empathy. Empathy, uh, it's the idea of getting yourself to a place of feeling what someone else feels. Empathy is a good thing because I don't think that, that can, we can really bring true compassion in the lives of those who are hurting without empathy. You, you've got to somehow get yourself to a place of, of tasting a little bit of that experience they're going through, right, and feeling that. That way you, you can really sympathize with them. But don't you dare ever say to someone who's suffered tremendous loss and you have never suffered that loss, don't ever be pretentious and say to them, I know exactly how you feel, because guess what? You don't. That's where you'll turn your friend off when you start talking like that. Well, I know exactly how you feel. Really, you've never lost a spouse. I have. That's where we become insensitive. But empathy would be like, I can't even imagine what you're going through, what that must be like. And it crushes me to know that you are crushed. That's empathy. But empathy can stop right there. In, in this word, this Hebrew word here, nakam, it goes way beyond just standard empathy, which I think is a good thing. It involves speaking to the mind, speaking to the heart of the sufferer, in an effort to bring about change in how the sufferer thinks and feels about his or her suffering. Nakam has to do with trying to, trying to bring in, in the midst of great difficulty, fresh perspective. 
and the joy of the Lord so that this person, their attitude about their circumstances can begin to morph and change. Maybe they can, you're helping them see the bigger picture. Maybe you're helping them understand the promises of God. Whatever it is, that's nakan. It's reasoning with your friend who's suffering in a loving way. When Joseph comforted his brothers, he did so in such a way as to reduce their fearfulness. Genesis 50, verse 21. When Boaz comforted Ruth, he did so in such a way as to make her feel welcomed like one of his trusted servants, even though she was an outsider. Ruth chapter 2, verse 13. Joab told David, King David, that if he doesn't comfort his army by speaking kind words to them, they will abandon him. 2 Samuel 19, verse 7. That's what it means to comfort, to speak kind words, to bring in fresh perspective, to try to turn the frown upside down into a smile, even though their circumstances are very difficult and dire. You know, that's, um, that's what the author of It Is Well did after losing his daughters in that shipwreck. They drowned in the English Channel. You know the song, It Is Well. I think it's Kelly and Tina's favorite hymn. But when you read the words, in his deep anguish, what does he focus? Read, you know, think of the lyrics of the song that speak to the work that Christ did on his behalf. So, what is he focusing on in his time of terrible loss? He's focusing on the work of Christ on his behalf, the fact that his sin has been removed in these things. And I, let me tell you something that is a good thing to remind those who are suffering of. Right? That is. That's, that's what that. The author of that song did. That's helpful that in the midst of crippling emotional pain that we would be pointed to Christ in the vanquishing of our sin and adversary. That's good news. That's the best news. And believe it or not, that, that, is, a, that is a healing balm in those times to be pointed to Christ and what He's done on our behalf. Amen? Now, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were determined to comfort Job by sympathizing with him, by speaking kindly to him in an effort to change his attitude, change his outlook on the situation. Uh, think about what Job has been through, right? Lost his wealth, lost his children, ten of them lost his health. It makes sense that it would take at least three guys to come together as a team to come and try to sympathize and encourage this dude, right? That's some serious loss. But here's the deal, and here's what's so sad. They didn't comfort him. They condemned him. They ended up making Job's situation much worse by adding insult to injury. Through a seemingly endless barrage of false accusations, these friends became like Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12, verse 10. 
See, they came with this good intent, but once Job started speaking, something triggered them to think that Job had sinned, and that's why all this stuff fell on them. So then we go into 40-some-odd chapters of them trying to accuse him of not being blameless and not being upright and somehow sinning, which we've already told he didn't do. This is a classic case of, of these friends, and our friends have done this. It's really aren't listening to us, to what we're saying. And they don't, they don't have a right view of the situation and what we're going through. And they, and they, have, this, they, they have this kind of one-dimensional view and outlook on things, and that's just the thing they're focused on, and that's all they can do. The only reason why you're going through this, Job, it has to be because my theology is pretty narrow. It has to be because you've sinned, because God punishes sinners. That's the singular dimension of their theology. All three of them are guilty of this. And that's their focus. And like Satan, who hurls accusations against us endlessly before the throne of God, that's what these three friends end up doing before their bestie, Job. But we're not to question their sincerity. Think of how far they went and what they went through to come and comfort this man. If I were Job about halfway through, I would have said, could you travel 100 miles back to your town? Could you just take everything you brought and go? I mean, they just weren't helpful. And this is so convicting for me because there have been times where, where I know God has wanted me to bring compassion and, and His mercy and, 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 His, you know, and, and to bring some level of empathy and, and sympathy into a situation. But, but Phil is entirely focused on one instance of something with that person and that's all I can focus on. And so no matter what they say or do, that's what I'm determined to prove. Would we all agree that that can happen with us and it has? That happens and that's what happens with these men. I think it's just unbelievable that us saints have the potential to become like Satan with accusations. Huh? Yeah. That can happen. That can happen. That happens when our zeal for our theology supersedes our love for people. That's when it happens. When we just love a view or a perspective or, or something that we deem or think of as right, when we love that more than the one standing before us. That's when it happens. And that has happened with me. This is why I don't have social media. I created so many hills to die on at the expense of others, it's not even funny. I had to get out of there. I had to get out of there, not because I think Facebook's terrible and narcissistic, I do believe that, but I had to get out of there because Facebook brings the worst out of me. 
the absolute worst. It causes me to become an accuser. That's not what we're called to, people. It's not what we're called to. Verse 12a, it says, And when, speaking of the friends, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Oh, my goodness. When Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar approached the ash heap on the outskirts of Uz, they could see Job in the distance. He was the only one there. And, and somehow they had learned that that's where he was because they knew where to go to find him, but they could see him in the distance, but they couldn't really recognize him, even at a distance. You know, if you, if you have a friend that you're close to, you can still kind of pick them out from a distance. Their stature, the things they wear and all that. Oh, I can tell that's Cameron. You know, I can tell by that hair, you know, or whatever. You can, you can to Cameron's thinking, what's wrong with my hair? There's nothing wrong with your hair. But you can tell from a distance, right? You see a friend at a distance several blocks away. Yeah, that looks like, that looks like Mike back over there. It, well, within this scenario, as they got close, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't make him out. They couldn't recognize him. Or at least they couldn't fully recognize him. Why? Because of his appearance. Well, what was wrong with his appearance? Well, he'd been on the ash heap for months, probably hadn't eaten much. So what does that mean? He was much thinner. We know that he wasn't wearing his usual finery. Remember, he was a man who stood at the city gates. He was a prominent man, a wealthy man. He lost everything. He put on the sackcloth, the ashes, so he's wearing a burlap bag. So he didn't look like Job. It didn't look like Job because of his thinner stature. It didn't look like him because he didn't have on the nice clothes that he normally wore. Um, his skin was blackened from the ash, right? He kept putting the ash on himself in his mourning, so his skin was blackened. He had the boils all over. I don't know if they could pick those out from a few blocks away or whatever, but it was definitely him, but they just couldn't really tell. And maybe at that point, as they're getting closer, it looks like him, but I don't know about you, Bill, Dad. I'm choosing to believe it's not him because whatever that is, wow. Yeah, I agree. And as they drew closer and closer, they realized it was him. They said, it's him. I can tell by his face. I can tell. The man they knew, the man they admired, the man they loved, the greatest of all the people of the East, had been literally transformed into a grotesque freak show. And look at their response. Look at how they reacted when they finally realized it was him when they got close enough. In verse 12b, it says, And they raised their voices and wept. The sight of their beloved friend was just too much for them to bear, so they began to weep aloud. A better rendering of the verse would be, They lifted up their voices and wept. Job's appearance was so terrible, so distorted and disgusting. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar felt totally helpless and utterly incapable of bringing him any comfort at all. They took one look at him, knew what he had been through, took one look at his physical appearance and said, what are we supposed to do with him? How could we 
even begin to minister to him? How could we be any sort of help or uh, help to him or consolation? How could we possibly encourage him? I mean, he looked worse than the lepers in the leper colonies outside of these towns looked. He was a, a pulverized pile of pussy boils, of just repulsive. How could they help him? All they could do at that point is just, no, and just start crying aloud together. No. That's all they could do. How could they sympathize with and comfort Job, whom they could barely look at without becoming sick to their stomachs? I remember, I don't know if I was at a grocery store or wherever, I remember a guy came up by me, and this is a while ago, and he had literally, he had boils all over him, just all over his face and neck and his arms. And, and I remember standing by him, and I couldn't, I couldn't it, just, it just tossed my stomach. I could barely look at him. I, I couldn't look at him. You know, sometimes strange things and people that are in situations, there's a curiosity there that causes us to kind of stare at them. You see this with children, you're like, hey, stop staring at him, right? Kids like, get out of there, right? I could not look at this man. I could not look at him. I felt so bad. I felt ashamed because I couldn't look at him. And that, that is what these three friends were experiencing at a higher level, I think. I mean, this was their friend. I didn't even know this guy. I was getting groceries. You know, it, it was as if for these guys, these friends, it was as if Job had been taken away to a different realm, a realm of suffering so deep where you feel like you cannot reach that person like they've literally been removed from this comfy world that we live in. They might be there in our presence, but, but they're really not there in a sense. They have been such removed through this tremendous suffering that they just don't seem to fit in our comfy little world anymore. We feel like they've been taken and put somewhere else. You can even see it in their, the hollowness that's in their eyes. Gerald, Gerald Jensen wrote, Many have had this experience of visiting a familiar friend or family member and of being shocked at the altered appearance. It is not just the physical features that have been altered, but something deeper. It is as though the calamity or the suffering has claimed the other in an experience alien to us. The other is no longer fully or even primarily in our familiar world, but inhabits a realm whose terrain is strange and foreign to us. He says, we sense a chasm across which we cannot or will not venture 
and from which we draw back in self-protective fear onto the safe ground of our familiar world. Or we attempt to cross the chasm somehow through sympathetic, perhaps symbolic identification, hoping to draw the other back with us into the familiar world. Does what he wrote here resonate with any of you? Have you ever been in a situation where you went to the bedside or somewhere where a loved one or a friend or somebody you know was maybe in a horrific car accident and completely disfigured or that their suffering was so deep and and so profound that when you were in their presence, it actually scared you and you felt like they were alien to us. That's what he's talking about here. That's what Jensen is talking about here. I have experienced this. I remember um, years ago there was a a guy by the name of Mo who went to Big Valley and he was in a car accident right up the street up here. Uh, He was going through, I think, uh, Kiernan and McHenry and a woman ran the light and sideswiped him and he was basically killed. And, but they were able to trach him and put him on oxygen and these sorts of things. And he was paralyzed basically from like the neck down. Christopher Reeve's level where you have to have a breathing apparatus. And I remember going and getting that call that, hey, one of the students from Big Valley has been in a terrible car accident. Basically died, but they've got him alive. But he's in really, really bad shape. And I remember going to the hospital with Anson, the high school pastor at the time, and going to visit Mo, uh, Mo just a day or so after, or maybe it was even that evening, but you know, he had just come out of surgery, and, and man, when I went in there, I remember just thinking, that's Mo? That's Mo? Where's his face? His face was ripped off by the impact, and they sewed it back on. Now, Mo is still alive today. I haven't seen what he's like. Um, That was an instance where I felt that alien kind of thing there. It was very alien, and he's with us, but he's not. You know what I'm saying? That's what Job's friends felt here. And all they could do is just weep and cry out loud and wail, they couldn't believe what their eyes were seeing. 12, uh, verse 12c, it says, And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. So Job tore his robe back in chapter 1, verse 20, right? Upon learning about his children being killed by that Shiraco windstorm. He tore his robe, right? Now Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar tear their robes. The tearing of their robes symbolized the emotional anguish they were experiencing at that moment, right? It represents the tearing of the heart. Our hearts have been torn in two. And they also tossed dust into the air toward heaven and let it sprinkle down onto their heads. Dust represents mortality and death. 
God told Adam what? You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3.19. The tearing of the robe and sprinkling of dust on the head were common ancient mourning practices. When Israel lost a significant battle against the city, a city called Ai, Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their robes and put dust on their heads. Joshua 7, verse 6. When an Israeli messenger reported the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines, he arrived in Shiloh with his robe torn with dust on his head. 1 Samuel 4, verse 12. After Tamar is raped by her perverted half-brother Amnon, she tears her robe and puts ashes, dust, on her head. 2 Samuel 13, 19. This is an ancient morning ritual. The tearing of the robe, the tossing up of dust, letting it sprinkle on the head. When Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar tossed and sprinkled dust on their heads, they were vividly identifying themselves with Job's dead children. That's what the sprinkling of ash represents. You're identifying yourself with the dead. What is the dust? The dust is what covers our bodies after we are buried. That's what they're doing. That's the symbolism here. They're heaping it up in the air and it's falling on them. They're showing Job, we recognize your loss, your dead children. Now we can move to verse 13a. It says, and this is the next thing they did, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. The ancients believed that the ground was as close as one could get to the realm of the dead. Sheol is mentioned eight times in Job. It's mentioned 63 times in the Old Testament. The Greek word for Sheol is what? Hades. How many of you are familiar with the word Hades? Maybe you know that word more than you know the word Sheol. Hades is mentioned nine times in the New Testament. Now, by sitting on the ground, Job and his three friends thought they were as close to where Job's children would have been, Sheol. So even in the sitting on the ground, it is symbolic of something deep and profound. It's not just sitting in the dirt. But we need to understand something, that Sheol, if you study the Bible, Sheol is for the wicked dead, not the righteous dead. Sheol is a, is a type of temporary hell, a temporary Old Testament hell. The righteous dead, when a righteous person died, like thinking of Abraham, they went to what became known later as Abraham's bosom or paradise, Luke 16, verse 22, and Luke 23, verse 43, which was also believed to be below the surface. Isn't that interesting? The Old Testament saints and many of the New Testament saints believed that when a person dies, if they are evil, they went to Sheol. If they were righteous, they went to paradise or Abraham's bosom. Now, some would just say, none of that's true. The righteous just go to heaven and the unrighteous just go to hell. Well, if you study Revelation, you'll find out that hell is a future thing that's coming. That the place where people go now would be Sheol or Hades, which is a temporary incarceration until judgment. 
But the righteous dead, according to the Old Testament, would go to Abraham's bosom. So if Job's children were true believers like their dad, and I believe they were, they would have been in paradise. They would have been in Abraham's bosom, not in Sheol. All of the Old Testament saints were in Abraham's bosom or paradise. What were they doing? Awaiting for Christ to come. Now, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. During Jesus' burial, He went down into Sheol, Hades, and proclaimed His victory against Satan to the spirits in prison, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He also crossed the great fixed chasm that exists between Sheol and Paradise, Luke chapter 16, verse 26. And he released a host of captives from Paradise, that's all of the Old Testament saints, whom he then led into heaven at his ascension, Ephesians 4, 8. Isn't that fascinating? Now, some people vehemently deny that interpretation of those passages, but we need to remember the Bible says what it says. Why do I bring that up? Well, I'm just pointing out the fact that these men sat on the ground symbolizing being close to Job's children, but his children were not in Sheol. They would have been in paradise if they were believers. So when they're sitting on the ground, they're still close to them in their minds because paradise was also below the surface. Now Job and his children and every Old Testament saint have been taken out of paradise and put in heaven by Jesus, because that's a work He completed at His ascension. Now I want you to notice the duration in which Job and his friends sat on the ground. What does it say in the text? Seven days, seven nights, right? Seven days, seven nights. We learned early on that seven is a significant symbolic number in Scripture. Here, this was the customary mourning period for a deceased loved one, right? Genesis chapter 50, verse 10. The dead were mourned for seven days. In Judaism, it is called Shiva, which means seven. Still exists today. Now, if the deceased was a significant leader, that period of mourning lasted well beyond seven days. It would be 30 days. That was the case with Aaron. That was the case with Moses. 30 days of mourning for those great men. Numbers 20, 29, and Deuteronomy 34, verse 8. Now we can move to 13b. And this is the, the last thing that Job's friends did here in this text. It says, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was so very great. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar said nothing during that seven-day mourning period. Not a single word. Uh, how many of you have a hard time being quiet for a few minutes? How many of you would be insanely tempted to say something in the midst of this travail very quickly? How could you hold your tongue for seven days, right? I can't hold my tongue for seven seconds. And, and I would immediately come right out of the gate with both barrels firing, encouragement, 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 right? Meanwhile, he's like, I'm getting, he's getting worse, he's getting worse, he's getting, you know. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you do this? I mean, these guys were insane. Not one 
word. And what's interesting is that they had come to sympathize with Job and comfort him, right? The only way to do that would be to speak. Why did they remain silent? Because his suffering was so great, they didn't know what to say. They, they didn't know what to say at this point. And if you look ahead a little bit, you'll see the first one to speak is Job, not them. He spends an entire chapter cursing his birth. And then they're like, okay, there's the invitation to talk. You're acting like a fool, right? I mean, all he does is curse his birth. You know, we've said things like that in times of grief. I wish I was never born. Well, he says it for like 26 verses. And at that point, they could no longer remain silent. But they said nothing for seven days until Job spoke. Have you ever been at the bedside of someone who is suffering greatly or maybe near death? It can be very difficult to speak to them in that moment. Does does anyone know what I'm talking about here? Tell me right now, you're on your way there and, and you have an idea of what you want to say, but then as soon as you see the person, you're like, I don't know what to say. You start to clam up. You don't know what to say. There's been a few times where I was at the bedside of of someone who's dying or very, very sick, in situation with Mo, for instance, but I just, I couldn't come up with anything worthwhile to say, and and not in the case of Mo, but definitely in the case of my stepdad, not having, or really praying about it and having something good to say in that situation as my stepdad's lying there dying, I say something completely stupid that I still regret today. I make a joke. I mean, he wasn't like on a breathing apparatus about ready to die. He was still cognizant and looking at me. And when I made my stupid comment, he looked at me and went, but it's like, how many, how many of you do the same thing? When you have nothing to say and then you choose to say something, you say something you wish you had never said. There is something about those moments where words escape us. We feel like, I, I, you're a pastor, you should know what to say. That doesn't help me. Being a pastor doesn't empower me. It can be very difficult to come up with words to say in those situations. We often feel very speechless. I have experienced that. You know what a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, told me years ago that was just really awesome? He, he, he described to me what he called the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence. That's where you're in the room, but you just don't say much. You're just there, and it's your physical presence that can bring comfort. I've been in, I've been in hospital rooms with, with dying people, with families I hardly knew, but somehow my presence in there brought them comfort. I had a, a guy I used to work with who asked me to go and minister to his dying grandmother, and, and he called me and said, can you go visit her? And I said, Sure, he goes, you're the only holy man I know. And I was like, I can't go. <laughs> holy? I mean, I, don't, I felt Old Testament, like, you know, I was wearing like the robe and stuff. And You're the only holy man I know. Those are his exact words. And I was like, yeah, right? I felt like home. home. I didn't know what to do. I was like the holy man. 
okay, whatever, I'll go and minister to her. But even in that scenario, when I got there, it was awkward, and I didn't even know anyone in there except him. It was hard. But my friend told me about the ministry of presence. That's where your physical presence is what ministers and brings comfort. And I know that day when I was out there at that guy's, at, the, at uh, Manuel Lutheran out there in Turlock, I know that my presence brought them comfort. The, just, the, the room and the tension seemed to ease up when I got there. I thought, wow, this is the first time I've ever had a positive effect through my physical presence. Usually I leave and it's a destruction zone. Yeah, right? I'm like animal, you know, on the drums, you know, just... Now, I've adopted this practice, and I've been using it ever since. Maybe some of you in here have seen that, where I just stand or sit quietly in the room. And you know what? Sometimes people who are suffering greatly, they can be just inconsolable. I mean, if you can, if you can talk with them, sometimes they're inconsolable. There's nothing that you say or do that actually helps. Encouraging words do not work. Scripture bounces off them like a bulletproof vest. Speaking comes across as insensitive and unkind and utterly useless because their level of suffering has gone beyond all reason. When people lose their rational abilities and logic because their suffering is so great, speaking becomes an enemy. The only thing that will help, if it helps at all, is the ministry of presence. And sometimes that's a person that needs to be left alone for a little bit. But if you don't have much time or they don't have much time, I would suggest not leaving them alone at all and just be there and say what you can. Job's suffering was like this, and Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar knew it. They said nothing, but they did, in a sense, practice the ministry of presence by being there and by sitting on the ground or on the ash heap with him for seven days and seven nights. The great question is, did Job find their ministry of presence, their physical presence, comforting? The first words from his mouth seem to indicate that he did not. 26 verses lamenting the day he was born closing. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar made an appointment to come and visit their buddy Job, who had recently lost his wealth, children, and health. They rendezvoused at a play, planned location and then traveled to us together as a team. When they drew near to the ash heap on the outskirts of town, they saw Job at a distance, but they didn't really recognize him until they got much closer. His appearance was so shocking, they lifted up their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and tossed dust into the air toward heaven and let it sprinkle down onto their heads. All this is totally symbolic. They sat on the ground on the ash heap with their beloved friend seven days, seven nights. Rather than speaking, which would have been highly inappropriate at that time, they remained quiet as a mouse and practiced the ministry of presence. That's what we've studied. These details, as I said earlier, they illustrate the, the strong connection and deep friendship these men had with their pal Job. These details also tell us that these men were extremely thoughtful, that they were deeply caring, and that they were very brave because travel in those days was extremely dangerous. The murderous 
Sabians and Chaldeans were in the land and they were always on the hunt. Didn't we not just read about how they killed all his servants and took his livestock? They were there. These were those land pirates. They were lethal. These men were very, very brave. But like all friends do, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar eventually blow it. They somehow become convinced that Job is suffering because of personal sin, and they begin to pick at him like a stressed chicken relentlessly picks at an object or at its own feathers or flesh. Did you know that some chickens literally pick themselves to death? These men nearly picked Job to death. Read Job 14. The book of Job reminds us thus far of how our most trusted friends often fall short and fail us. But we mustn't stop here. That would be too depressing, right? We must look beyond them. We must look beyond our own earthly friends. We must look beyond our Eliphazes, our Bildads, and our Zophers to our perfect and truly faithful friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is closer than a brother. Proverbs 18, verse 24. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5. He is with us to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. And there is something that Job's friends did that Jesus will never do. He will never condemn us. Never. There is no condemnation for those who are in Him. Zero. Romans 8.1. What I'm telling you is, is that Jesus is the better friend. Some of you need to hear that this morning. I do. He is the better friend. He is the true friend. He is the utterly and absolutely faithful friend. He is the perfectly loving friend. He is the totally gracious friend. He is the endlessly merciful friend. He is. He is the better friend. It is in His presence there is the fullness of joy. It is in or at His right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. If we will draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. James 4.8, right? I say may we draw near to Him during these strange and uncertain times and experience afresh His satisfying love, satisfying friendship, enduring faithfulness, His wonderful, wonderful, perfect companionship. I think that's the encouragement we need to hear today.
We live in a fragmented friendship world. Relationships don't get very deep. The minute you begin to trust someone, they destroy it. It happens. It happens. Amen? That's why we need Christ. He is the friend that never destroys the relationship. Albeit, we attempt to destroy it with Him. And even then, even then, He endures that foolishness and draws us to Himself with His cords of love. Think of that. He is the friend. He is the better friend. May we enjoy our friendship with Him. It alone will satisfy. It alone will satisfy. Amen?